first uh, 16 verses of Acts 17, continuing our study here through the book of Acts and Paul's second missionary journey. He is with uh, Silas and Timothy and Luke. And let's see what the Lord has in store for this real quick announcement before we go on. A couple of clarifications there from what some of the stuff we were saying about the fair. If you are interested in the shirts for the fair, we need to know by Wednesday. We need to know by Wednesday, and that way that can be taken care of. So if you're interested in getting one of those shirts for the fair, know by Wednesday. And I just want to reiterate, too, what Karen mentioned. If you want to help out with the booth, there is a couple extra passes that can be passed around so you can come out and do a shift. Some of you may remember, it's been a few years, but we used to do a uh, booth at the fair, and there was a neat blessing. There was fruit that came out of it. And, you know, it's neat that somebody has got this vision again and wants to do that. So prayerfully consider getting behind it. A lot of neat opportunities. Opportunities to serve there with the uh, back-to-school giveaway. Opportunities to serve there with the booth. Need opportunities to get involved and say, Lord, we really want to make a stand for you. So, prayerfully consider that and see where the Lord's leading with you and let the Spirit lead there. So, Acts 17. Let's do the smart thing and pray. We'll jump right into this. Heavenly Father, as always, you wrote this. We just pray that you would teach this through your Spirit. Give us wisdom. Give us direction. Lord, show us. And just pray that our hearts would be open to what you have to say to not just hear it, but to live it, Lord, in your name. Amen. Acts 17, let's go ahead and start with verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollyon, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. This is kind of what Paul did. We've mentioned this before. Paul would go into a new town, and as he would go into a new town, he would look for the synagogue. Synagogue is where the Jewish men would get together. Now, if they did not have enough Jewish men to make a synagogue, as what happened last week in uh, Philippi, they would meet along the river, and so Paul would go to where they were meeting. So Paul would walk in, and what would happen during New Testament time is that if you had a visitor visiting, they would allow them possibly to get up and share and expound on the Scriptures. Paul obviously was a learned man. He was a scholar. So he would... I'm assuming, carry himself in a very intellectual way there that they would understand that this man had something that could share. So he'd get up and share. And what he was sharing about was Jesus. I assume that he would take the scriptures there from the Old Testament and talk about how they applied to the Christ, to the Messiah, and then introduce Christ to them. Now, please note that he did this for three Sabbaths. I think this is important because one of the key things that you see here is we've become this society of what I call almost drive-through evangelism. We're going to witness to you, we're going to witness to you quick, and we're just going to keep on going. Really what you see in the Bible is you see this building of relationships. You see Paul willing to devote a few Sabbaths here to getting to know them and talking to them, etc. Other certain times he stayed in towns for a year, maybe a year and a half, building that type of relationship. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for the Lord opening a door and having what I call that brief moment where you may only meet this person once and you get an opportunity to share Christ with them. And that's a wonderful opportunity. But what I've noticed in my years of walking with the Lord is most of the time that I get a chance to share Christ with somebody, it's because I've built up a relationship with them, possibly over weeks, months, even years. And the Lord has opened a door to get a chance to talk to them. Now, think about the people that you're around the most. Co-workers and generally family. Now, think about the people that you don't want to be around the most. Generally co-workers and family. Sometimes what's nice about witnessing to someone you've never met is there's not this emotional attachment, there's not this burden, there's not this baggage. It's this little one and done and you move on. You know, a lot of times with coworkers, God has opened up a door that you're around them 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 hours a day, maybe 5, 6, 7 days a week. 
That's quite the opportunity to build a relationship with them and share. But a lot of times when it comes to work, the first thing we think of is I don't want to be around my coworkers. I want to get home as soon as I can. Family. Sometimes we're forced to be around family that we normally aren't. And once again, sometimes we think, oh, boy, I could do anything to not be around them. Those may be the ones the Lord's bringing into your life that you can build a relationship and get to know them and share. Once again, if the Spirit leads and you have an opportunity to do the quick, what I call, drive-through evangelism, amen. You may have that one opportunity. Plant a seed, pray for them, witness them, share Christ with them. But I think the majority of your fruit is going to come from people that you know and you've built a relationship with over time. And that's where you're really going to be able to get a chance to talk to them. And what do you get to do when you talk to them? It says right here in verse 2, he reasoned with them. That word reasoned is interesting. That word means to discuss. It means to think differently. Once again, there is an opportunity for evangelism where it's very just straightforward. There's a heaven, there's a hell, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins to take you out of hell and to lead you into eternal life in heaven. Amen. But what I notice is, once again, the people you talk to the most is you discuss with them. You reason with them. You are trying to talk to them and have them think differently. I love those conversations. I love a conversation with somebody who really doesn't know a lot about God, who has chosen to reject it. And let's just sit and talk about the Lord. And let's let the Spirit lead there to have you discuss this and hopefully think differently on who Jesus Christ is. You know what the toughest people to talk to? Are the ones that think they're saved and they're not. The ones that think they got it all figured out and they're spiritually fine and they're not. Those are tough. I find it more enjoyable to talk almost with somebody who says, you know what, I've rejected Jesus. Then <laughs> I want to talk to you. That's a great conversation. Let's start right there. Let's reason. Let's think. Let's discuss. Using what? Verse 2, the scriptures. Now here's the thing. This idea of scriptures keep popping up again and again. And I'm assuming most everybody here probably knows that you're supposed to read your Bible. You probably know you're supposed to spend time in the Word. I don't think any one of you are going to walk out of the door today saying, Pastor James said the most profound thing I've ever heard. I'm supposed to read my Bible. I've never heard that before. I doubt that's going to go through your mind. But what happens is we know it, and then we don't. We don't do it. I was looking back to what Peter said and what Paul said, etc. Peter, in his last book, his swan song, Second Peter... What is he trying to do? He has this great verse. He says, where it's not wearisome or burdensome to remind them of the things that he's already told them. Basically, at the end of his life, he's saying, I don't find it a burden to repeat to you again the stuff I've already told you. Paul's last book that he probably wrote, 2 Timothy, basically he's telling Timothy, hey, I'm going to remind you of everything I've already told you. And the key thing is, stick to the word, be in the word. Parents, how many times have you told your kids to slow down, not run? How many times have you told your kids, don't talk with your mouth full? You know what? You just keep repeating these life lessons. Paul, Peter, at the end of their lives, is repeating the same theme. Get into the Word of God. How are you supposed to reason with people? Is because you're supposed to explain to them from the Scripture. Look at verse 3. Explaining and demonstrating, knowing the Bible and utilizing it. Now, we're going to go a different route with this. I made a list. And I want to start out with something normal, excuse me, something that's not normal that we normally do. I want to talk about the blessing of not being in God's Word. So this is, and this is an honest list I made. There is a blessing in not being in God's Word, and I have more time. If I choose not to do devotions, if I choose not to get up early and do devotions, or not to do family devotions, I have more time. So I made a list of what would I do with my more time, and this is what I made up. I would sleep more and watch more TV. That's what I decided I would do. 
Now, we'd like to think here and think that we'd be really deep and we would do something. No. If we had more time, we'd probably just be lazy about it and probably waste it. So then I start thinking, what happens when I'm not in the Word? What happens? And I wrote down three things that happened to me personally. This is for me. If I'm not in the Word of God, I start to feel stale spiritually. I can't put it into words. I just feel stale. I mean, I still love the Lord. I still love the church. I still love the idea of the gospel being spread. But there's just this staleness about me spiritually. The next thing is, I don't have direction. I mean, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I really don't feel I have a clear direction and purpose of what I'm supposed to be doing. And the last one, I become really, really comfortable. Why is that? Well, the first one, stale, is because God's Word, the Bible says that when you get into the Word of God, it is a fire that your heart burns for it. So if you find yourself stale spiritually, it's not that you're necessarily backsliding. It's not that you're going out and doing awful, horrible things. You're just are stale spiritually. Being in God's Word creates a fire, creates a burning passion for Him. The next one, no direction. Being in God's Word is guidance. The Bible makes it clear that His Word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. When I'm consistently in the Word of God, all of a sudden, these tough situations at church, there's clearer answers because of the Word. When someone calls me and asks me a question, there's the answers because I've been in the Word. I know what the Lord wants me to do. There's direction. And the last one, comfortable. See, God's Word convicts. Hebrews 4.12 says that His Word is alive and active. It's a double-edged sword that cuts into your heart. When I'm not in the Word of God, I don't feel as convicted because there's nothing telling me what I'm doing is wrong. I feel pretty good. But when I'm in the Word of God and I start reading it, I start realizing there's things I need to change. So I have more time if I choose not to be in God's Word, but what am I going to do with it? I'm going to probably waste it. Number two, when I find myself out of God's Word, I'm stale. I have no direction. I'm comfortable. Being in God's Word creates a fire in me. It guides me and it convicts me. And those are all good things. Now, here's the catch, though. I'm in the Word. I'm reading the Word. I'm not getting anything out of the Word. I find it boring. I find it tedious. What do I do then? I think we need to change how we look at it a little bit. If you're taking notes, I just wrote down a couple things here. First one is you have to read the Word of God expectantly. I expect the Lord to speak to me when I get into the Word of God. I was reading this morning in Proverbs, and I expected him to say something. And when you know it, one of those verses in Proverbs was exactly what I needed to hear. I go into my time with the Lord expecting him to speak through the word, and I walk away then growing by it. If I go in and I treat my time in the word as a have to, as some type of homework, I'm going to get through it as quick as I can, be thankful it's done, and move on. I want to go in with an expectation of saying, Lord, this is how you choose to talk to me. And I expect it to happen. I also write it down. I've got to the point now where I need to have a notebook with me or a pen, at least a pen, so that when I read something, I can mark it, I can underline it, I can circle it. I want to be prepared for this. You know, it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 17, if you wanted to be the king of Israel, one of the first requirements for being the king was you had to write out your own copy of the word of God. You had to take the Old Testament law and write it out so that way you knew what you were supposed to be doing and how you were supposed to be ruling. So I go into this idea of writing it down. I've shared this story with you before. Forgive me for repeating it, but I remember the first time we had a staff meeting out here at church. I was so excited. So I've always had this idea, we're going to get together and we're going to see what the Lord's vision is for stuff. So we got the staff together out here and we're getting ready to do this. And as we get ready to start the meeting, first thing I see is Tony pull out a notebook and a pen. Then I see Nancy 
pull out a notebook and a pen. And then you'll never believe this. Richard pulled out a notebook and a pen. If you know Rich, he's the most unorganized person. He was even expecting. And I realized there was this expectation of we're spending time together. Let's take notes. Let's write down what the Lord wants us to do. There was this expectation of something is going to come out of this important. And I realized that if I'm taking time to sit with the Lord and read his word, am I not expecting him to do something? Then I should probably be ready. Let's write it down. Let's mark it. Let's go back and meditate on it. Two more other quick points on this. They both start with a C. You need to read the Word of God consistently. See, if you're in the Word on Wednesday, amen. Next thing you know, Thursday's busy, Friday's busy, Saturday. You find some time on Sunday, amen. Well, then Monday's busy, Tuesday's busy. We're back to Wednesday. And what happens is you can't build this consistent theme. I'm going to tell you right now, when I'm in the Word of God regularly, consistently, the Lord builds every day off of what I'm reading and studying. Especially if I'm going through a book. It's fresh in my mind. I just read this yesterday, and as I pick it up the next day, it consistently builds. But if I find myself kind of jumping on days, there's not a consistency. And I'm not trying to pick on you guys out there because I know what happens. People will come up and say, it works for me. It really is not a consistent reading to just say, Lord, what do you want me to know today? Flip the book open. Now, if everybody comes up at one time or another and says, well, I did that, and the Lord really answered. Yes, he did. And he can answer that way. Go home today for lunch, close your eyes, and just pick something randomly out of the cupboard. You'll get food. There's a good chance it'll be something you like, because you bought it. (laughs) But to consistently grow, you plan a meal. Consistently be in the Word. And the last one, conversationally. When I'm reading and studying the Word of God, I'm actually praying as I'm reading, saying, Lord, speak to me. What do you want me to get out of this? This is his communication tool to me. So think about this. Read it consistently. Read it conversationally. Read it expectantly. Write it down. It's amazing what the Word of God does then. And then when you have that, jumping back now to verse 2, you can reason with people from the Scriptures because you're prepared. If I'm not in the Word, I only can speak for me. I find myself becoming stale. I find myself not having direction in life. And I find myself becoming comfortable. When I'm in the Word, there's a fire that grows. There's a Word that guides me. And I'm convicted by those things. Be in the Word, and it will bless you. No doubt about that in any way whatsoever. A lot of times people say, well, I don't know where to start. I'm just going to give you a couple suggestions. If you've been following with us online on the church Facebook page or on the uh, website, we've been going through Psalm 119 together. So we're going to get some more out this week. I encourage you, Psalm 119 is a great psalm. Or there's the simplicity of this. I first heard it from Billy Graham. You just read Proverbs one chapter a day. 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. Start with Proverbs 1, then 2, then 3, then 4. Please don't be the person that says, well, it's already August 3rd. I'll wait till September 1st. Don't do that. You don't have to line it up perfectly. You could start Proverbs 1 today, or if you've got a little bit of OCD, to start writing Proverbs 3. I completely understand. I have that myself. If you want something a little bit more, I know people that read a chapter of Proverbs a day, and they also read a psalm a day. Wonderful stuff. There's a great place to start. And I am not picking on anybody, but here's my personal opinion. Don't start in Genesis. A lot of people say, well, that makes perfect sense. It's the beginning. It is the beginning. But let's learn about Jesus. Gospels, John, 1 John. It's funny, I preach that. You know, don't start in Genesis, it's good. My second son, Judah, wanted to start reading the Bible. Where did he start? Genesis. I said, what are you doing? He goes, I know you said not to start in Genesis, but... He got about five, six chapters into it, and I think now he's in John. So, I'm just telling you, Genesis is a good book, but if you really want to grow, 
start with one of the Gospels or maybe your first John or something. So, you see Paul here reasoning with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating. Remember, God's Word doesn't return void. I cannot stress this to enough. Isaiah 55, verse 11, it does not return void. I have had heart-to-heart conversations with people that go on forever. And I get done with this heart-to-heart conversation, and I walk away thinking, what really changed? Well, they shared their heart. I shared my heart. And then I stop and I think, yeah, but the Bible says that my heart is deceitfully wicked. So you shared your wicked heart, I shared my wicked heart, and we hope to find truth in there? Let's just stick to the Scriptures. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize, here's a verse. Go read, go pray. Go read Psalm 1. Go do this, because it's encouraging, it's uplifting, and that's how the Lord blesses us there. So what's the result of this? Verse 4, some were persuaded. Amen. But what happens? Verse 5, the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and there all are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Here's the thing. You have some in verse 4 that accepted, then you have some in verse 5 that are angry. You know, this is what I've noticed. If you get ten people together that don't know the Lord, and you sit there and you say, I want to explain to you the truth of scriptures and who Jesus is in heaven and hell. There's going to be a couple people who are just polite. They have no interest in what you're saying, but they're just a nice person. They're going to nod and agree and say, thanks for sharing. You're going to get a couple people that truly are interested and hopefully get saved. You're going to get some that just right at the beginning don't even care. They just walk away. But there's going to be some that just get angry. Have you ever noticed that? Some people just get angry when they hear about the Lord. And I've noticed in the Bible, anytime there's a marketplace and a mob, verse 5, it's never a good combination. So, bad combo here, and they're just angry. Why are they angry? Verse 6, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Boy, isn't that a great phrase. Don't you wish people would say that about you behind your back? Boy, he's really turned the world upside down for Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing that at work, whatever shift they put you on, you turn that shift upside down for the Lord? Well, we put them on first, next thing you know, everybody on first shift. So he moved into second, then he got second, then he got third. Or whatever group you were in, you turned the world upside down for Christ. We as a church, and I don't mean harvest, I mean the church in the world, we have lost this perspective that our goal is to turn the world upside down for the Lord. We're so busy with life that we forget why we're even here to live. And I think this is where it's so important to get our perspective back. How much time and energy this week did you spend on things that are not eternal. How much time did you stop and you say, Lord, I want to turn my workplace upside down for Christ. I want to turn my school around. I want to turn my family around upside down for Christ. No. Let's just be honest. The thought normally doesn't cross our mind because we're too busy doing this and that and what have you. What would happen if we got that passion back? That passion to say, I want to see my friends, my family, my coworkers, my classmates, whatever it is, changed for Jesus Christ. That passion. Boy, Lord, help us to have that. Verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily 
to find out whether these things were so. Let's build off this idea of passion, turning the world upside down for Christ, and then look at verse 11. The people here, the Bereans, they're more fair-minded. Some of your translations may say uh, more noble, more open-minded. They wanted to see the Scriptures. What did they do? Paul would teach them, and then they would search the Scriptures with all readiness. That word readiness literally means zeal. They would search it with all zeal to know whether these things are true. Has your zeal for the Lord begin to falter a little bit? Has your zeal for the Scripture? I remember when I first got saved. I got saved when I was a junior in high school. I remember there was such a passion and a zeal for the Lord. I remember I was going through the book of Isaiah. Never studied the book of Isaiah before. I'd get up so early in the morning because I just wanted to spend time with Isaiah. And my junior year in high school, I wanted to turn the school upside down for Christ. Then that zeal faded. As a senior, I met Dawn. And she sucked the zeal right out of me. You, know, you get focused then on life and girls and what have you. And then Dawn and I get married and etc. And I shared this with you a couple weeks ago that what happens as believers, we say things like this. Well, when you first get saved, there's this passion, there's this zeal. You want to tell everybody about the Lord and you want to be in the Word. But then you grow into this mature believer and they kind of call it the honeymoon phase. I think that's a bunch of baloney. Because the truth be told, there should be a passion for the Lord that never stops. Now, yes, as you mature in the Lord, you mature in wisdom. You mature in how you present it. You mature in what works and what doesn't work. But that passion for the Lord should never, ever start to fade. But this is what we think as believers. I've now been walking with the Lord 20 years. I've matured. and I appreciate your excitement as a young believer. Why, why can I have the same excitement? Why can't I have a zeal and a readiness? Can you imagine running into Paul at the end of his life saying, Oh, those young whippersnappers, let them tell people about Jesus. No. He's chained to people telling them about Christ. What happened to our zeal? Ask yourself, have you become stale? Do you have any direction in life? Have you become comfortable? Maybe we need to get in the Word here. Because as they're in the Word, verse 11, they're getting it with all zeal and readiness and searching the Scriptures daily, consistently in the Word consistently in the Word. And boy, God blessed it. Now, I think this is important because anytime someone gets behind a pulpit and has the Bible open, we automatically start thinking what they're saying must be true. We have a spiritual responsibility to search those things out to say, does it line up with the Scripture? And that goes for anybody, including whoever teaches out here at Harvest. There's a responsibility. If I make a reference like I did earlier to Isaiah 55:11 or Hebrews 4:12, I hope you write that down and say, I'm going to go double-check that. Not because I'm necessarily doubting James, but I want to search the scriptures and find out for myself. There's a gal that uh, comes out here, and about every few weeks or so, she calls me up. And she just has a list of Bible questions. I love those calls. She'll call me up. She's called me up last Sunday. She's like, uh, hey, do you got a few minutes? I said, yeah. She goes, I got some questions for you. And we just go right down the road, right down the list. Hey, I was reading 1 Corinthians 8, verse whatever. We read the verse. What do you think it means? We talk about, okay, next one. Talk about next one. Talk about it. And then we get done at the end. She goes, okay, thanks. And I said, hey, great. And I walk away with that conversation so blessed. Somebody who has been in the Word, studying the Word, looking at the Word, has questions, let's answer them. Let's go on. There's a zeal. There's a passion. She's studying out the Word. And what a blessing that is to see. And I look at verse 11. I think, Lord, that's what I want. Look at the description once of them again. Fair-minded can also be, in some of your translations, noble. This is not noble like this uh, higher-up snobbish. It's noble as an honorable. Lord, I want to be noble. I want to be honorable in you that I want to spend my time in the Word. 
daily, searching, growing. That is what will create a fire and a passion for you and your walk with the Lord is the Word of God. Worship is great. Fellowship is great. All those things are wonderful. But the Bible says what promises a fire in your life is being in the Word. Your heart will burn for more of Him. So, as they're doing this, what happens? Verse 12, Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul, the Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. And immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. Both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him. With all speed they departed. So it gets rough again. They say, Paul, you better get out of here. So Paul leaves again, and he ends up in Athens. This is our last verse for today, verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. I think this is important. There is a a righteous anger that he sees in verse 16 for the city given over to idols. When's the last time you were righteously angry over what was happening? That word can also be translated... This idea of irritated or burn with anger. Now here's the catch, though. You've got to pay attention here. Righteous anger can become sinful anger very quickly. Very quickly. You can be righteously upset and angry over a situation, and then it can become sinful extremely quickly. You've got to be careful about that. And we like being angry. Now you may sit there and say, no. Yeah, we do. Feels good. We've joked out here before about having anger fantasies. They say this, and then I'm going to say that. They'll do this. And people get themselves set up. I've had people come to me before and say, Pastor, I just want to let you know, if he says something to me, so help me, you got yourself already set up. you got yourself set up for failure because you're just waiting for someone to pull the trigger so you can explode and you think you're righteous in that anger. Because they have so hurt you, so wronged you, that you're allowed to carry this burden and this anger. And that's not true. If you've been hurt or wronged by somebody, yes, the Bible says that you can be angry about that. But you know what you're supposed to do with that anger? Two things. Forgive and then give vengeance over to the Lord. See, we don't do that. The Bible says you've been hurt, wronged, and you're angry. Forgive them. And then the Bible says vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Problem is we hold on to that anger. And then we think we're justified in how we act and respond because this person has so hurt me and so wronged me. That's no longer righteous anger. That's sinful anger. See, the thing about righteous anger is this. Number one, two points about righteous anger. There's self-control. Righteous anger always has self-control. So if you're telling me you have righteous anger and you're saying words you shouldn't say, you're punching walls, you're hitting things, you're screaming, that's not righteous anger. That's not in any way whatsoever. That's flesh. Think about the righteous anger of Paul, verse 16. He's so irritated and provoked, he witnesses to them. Jesus, righteous anger, cleaning out the temple. Well, he went and turned tables over. Yeah, he turned the tables over and drove the people out. You can't come to me and say, Pastor, I am so filled with righteous anger for the Lord. I'm just going to go beat up non-believers. No, that's not biblical. You're so righteously angry over what the world is doing. You're fasting. You're praying. You're saying, Lord, open doors. Because you have self-control. So when anger is not being controlled, you can't say it's righteous anger. When anger is holding grudges and burdens, it is not righteous anger. Forgive 
and then give vengeance. Number two about righteous anger. Righteous anger gets upset at the things of God, not things personally. Righteous anger is, I'm so bothered by how they're treating the Lord, how they're treating the things of God, it frustrates me. Righteous anger is not, I have been so hurt, people have said this about me, I'm allowed to carry this burden. That's not righteous anger, that's personal. Forgive and vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, let it go. So Paul here, bothered, worked up, which leads us to this great sermon on the uh, Mars Hill, wonderful message, and I hope you can come back for it next week because I absolutely love it. But he's righteously upset. Now, this is where we need to take everything we learned and work backwards. Verse 16. Are you having a righteous anger for the things of the Lord? Are you irritated and do you burn with anger that this world is going to hell? That there's non-believers out there. Are you upset and bothered about things that are being said and done against the Lord? If so, you have a passion, verse 16. That's good. What do you do with that passion? Jump back to verse 11. Get in the scriptures daily and be noble-minded so that way you know God's word. Then jump back one step further. Then verse 2 and 3, go reason with the non-believers with the scripture explaining and demonstrating who Jesus is. See how we work backwards. Verse 16, I'm passionate for the Lord and what's going on. Things need to change. So verse 11, I spend time in the Word to prepare myself. And then verses 2 and 3, I go explain and demonstrate the truth of Scriptures to them and I talk to the non-believers. If you get this out of order, it doesn't work. So I'm just going to do verse 11. I'm going to be in the Word daily. But I'm not going to talk to anybody. But that doesn't do any good. Verse 2 and 3. I'm going to go talk to non-believers, but I don't really have a passion for them. I just don't care, or I'm not prepared in the Word. Or verse 16. This is what I see the most. I have a passion for God, and I'm going to do nothing about it. People are always worked up, aren't they? People are always worked up, verse 16. And what are they doing about it? You have to have all three. Verse 16, I'm passionate for the Lord. It bothers me what's going on. So therefore, verse 11, I spend time in the Word preparing myself to go find these things out. And then verse 2 and 3, I go talk to people about it. You need all three elements done in the right order, in the right way, and that's when fruit comes. We can learn a lot from Paul about how he goes out here and he presents this and does this because he's being led by the Spirit and he has a passion for that. I walk away from this message today and it's like, Lord, I want that. Give me a zeal for you. Give me a readiness to go out there and tell people about the Lord. Lord, give me a passion for it. Just ask yourself, have you become stale spiritually? Do you have any direction? Have you become comfortable? Time to get back in the Word. Let the Word be a fire. Let the Word guide you. Let the Word convict you. Read the Word expectantly. Read the Word consistently, conversationally. Write it down and see what happens when you allow that to overtake your life. You will be so blessed. I guarantee that. Marvin, come forward with a final song. A couple quick things here. We've got a couple busy weeks coming.